Hi, I'm Murdoch Gaddy, and thanks for listening to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. The Rate of Change is a podcast which explores the ever-shifting momentum of financial markets through the eyes of the leading managers in wealth management. In today's broadcast, I'm really excited to speak with Nick Thompson, the Portfolio Manager at Lakehouse Capital Global Growth Fund. Lakehouse Capital is an Australian-based fund manager launched in 2016. They have a long-term investing approach targeting asymmetric outcomes for a high-conviction strategy in mid- to large-cap growth companies outside of Australia. Based on January's fund fact sheet, the fund has averaged 13.6% for the past five years, saw the highs of 2021 with returns in the 30% region before experiencing a drawdown alongside most gross managers due to a rising rate environment. Recently, the fund's up 10.9% for the past month, while still being down 15% for the year. Today, we dive into some interesting topics, which are at the forefront of most investors' minds, such as where they think the markets are going in this rising rate environment, how the fund is positioned to either defensively deal with the volatility and take advantage of this volatility, and we also cover specific holdings in the portfolio. I found the conversation on Google and Microsoft fascinating, specifically regarding ChatGPT. For a giggle, I asked ChatGPT via OpenAI to write a one-of-a-kind investment quote based on Lakehouse's investment approach in the style of Warren Buffett and Howard Marks. Successful investing requires a combination of rational analysis and emotional discipline. It's not about trying to predict the future but about recognizing and valuing the opportunities that are present to you and having the patience and conviction to hold on to them for the long term. Quite remarkable, isn't it? So with that being said, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Nick as much as I did. So sit back and relax and enjoy it. Nick Thompson, welcome to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. Good to see you, Murdoch. Great to be here. Why don't we kick things off and why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into financial markets? Yeah, sure. Um, Look, I think for me, getting into finance was very much sort of a a natural progression uh, from early on. My father, he worked in the industry, so I was always around from a a very early age, Um, even by high school, you know, I kind of came fascinated with really trying to understand, you know, what drives asset prices, you know, aside from underlying fundamentals. Um, you know, it was pretty clear to me that there was also a, a significant sort of irrational and, and erratic nature to markets that was, was largely related to, to human psychology. Um, you know, that curiosity uh, naturally led me to Sydney University uh, where I studied commerce. And then after that, I did an additional year uh, where I did finance honours um, and I was studying behavioural finance. Um, in terms of my professional experience to date, uh, prior to Lakehouse, the bulk of my experience was with Dakota Capital. Um, they're an investment firm that focuses on private markets. Um, so I was there for about six years and we we typically had more of a, a distressed lean there in terms of our investing style. Um, so I actually joined that shop pretty early on, um, was employee number four, um, was also fortunate enough with them to actually get the opportunity to, to live um, and work over in New York towards the end of my time at Dakota, which was obviously a great experience. Um, fast forward to 2018 and I, I joined Lakehouse Capital. Um, and ever since then, it's kind of been head down, bum up, uh, very interesting markets. And I've been, you know, directly focused on the, the global growth fund. 
New York, New York. <laughs> Something like that. Good place to cut your teeth. Very much so. So let's talk about Lakehouse Capital Growth Fund. Um, what is the philosophy of the fund? Our approach is, is very much anchored around our philosophy. Um, in that we are long-term uh, concentrated and seeking asymmetric setups. Um, so that is, you know, situations where we feel we have multiple ways to win um, and few ways to lose. Um, you know, in terms of, I guess, what makes us unique, I would say there are a few things, but I think the big one is really our focus. Um, and, you know, that really starts by being clear on where we don't want to invest. Um, so we'll typically avoid commoditized, cyclical and, and capital intensive industries. Think airlines, uh, real estate, auto, manuf auto manufacturers, um, as the reality is, you know, the bulk of companies in these industries just aren't good businesses. Um, you know, their fortunes are often determined by a number of external factors that are beyond their control. And, you know, over the course of the cycle, um, they tend to earn pretty poor returns on, on capital. So for us, you know, as long-term investors with a very much a long-term time horizon, um, you know, it's a risk we're not really willing to take investing in those types of businesses. Um, you know, instead for us, we focus on trying to find companies with one of three core economic models. Um, and that's really centered around network effects, extremely loyal customers, um, and unique and enduring IP. You know, we believe that these core economic models um, are the primary driver of, you know, companies' resilience and durability. Um, and over the long term, you know, allow them to earn excess returns and, and compound shareholder capital. Um, so that's why we have a, a deliberate focus on them. And this is what we refer to as our, our fascinations um, in-house. So I guess to give you a sense on one of them, um, extremely loyal customers, um, just so it's a bit, a bit clearer to you because it can sometimes sound a little foreign. Uh, what we're really looking for there is, you know, really companies that have products and services that are, are deeply embedded in either an individual's life or a, a business's process. So companies that are are really kind of maniacally focused on, you know, customer satisfaction and retention. Um, obviously, the more mission critical these products are, the deeper the lock-in, um, as there's pretty significant costs in terms of, you know, operational risk and also time and money to, to change to a competitor. You know, when you find these companies, they tend to be in a very powerful position. Um, and there's a number of things they have, but, you know, the top three, I'd say, is, you know, very valuable recurring revenue streams, Ha, tend to have a significant degree of pricing power and also, you know, are often underappreciated in terms of their ability to develop new solutions or cross an upsell. Um, so I think, you know, we think a lot of, we think that, you know, a number of the, the companies we have in our portfolio are almost akin to sort of modern day digital utilities in that sense. Um, and really I'm talking about our enterprise software holdings, our, our e-commerce positions, our payment processes, for example. Um, so I guess that gives you a sense of the the philosophy and, you know, the type of companies we're after there. Enduring IP. Give a bit of color around that. Sure. So I guess on the IP front, what we're really looking for is, you know, businesses that have intangible assets that essentially lead to pricing power, but aren't captured on the balance sheet. So I think brands, patents, um, come to mind. I think, you know, the most obvious one for people to really relate to is consumer brands. Um, so if you think about Hermes um, with their Birkin handbags, um, that will go for, you know, anywhere from call it 20 to, to $60,000. The, 
the question you have to ask is, you know, why is Hermes able to sell that that Birkin handbag at extremely high gross margins and make a ton of money? You know, why are people willing to pay for that? And, you know, in our in our view, it's the unique and, and enduring IP that they have um, and that they've built up over, you know, more than a century um, in terms of building up that brand. I guess to really think about it from the consumer's perspective, it's, you know, what does that do for the individual? And at the end of the day, it says, hey, look at me, I have a lot of money and it turns out people will pay, you know, a decent premium if they can have a product that kind of conveys that social status to other people. So that's kind of an example of, of something on the IP front. So with the mandate of the fund, how's it structured? Um, we have a pretty broad mandate in terms of what we can invest in from a geographical um, and industry perspective. Um, that said, we, we, we have typically and, and most likely will continue to be um, sort of skewed towards developed markets. We do have a bit of um, emerging market exposure, but that's typically around about 15 to 20% of the fund. But we are long only. Um, so that is, we do not hedge, we do not short, we do not use derivatives or options or anything else there. Um, it, it's purely long only. And as I said um, earlier on, um, you know, high conviction, concentrated approach. So we'll only ever have between 20 and, and 30 positions in the portfolio at any one time. And and at the moment, we're, we're kind of on the lower bound there around about 2021. 20, um, I guess the only other thing from an investor's perspective is, is maybe around liquidity. Um, so... The fund is not listed, um, but we do have daily liquidity, so a very liquid fund. What's the size of the fund? Uh, $250 million. Is that AUD or USD? AUD. And how can uh, investors access direct? Is it on platform? Uh, yes, we are on platforms, um, and they can also come direct. So there's, there's plenty of different ways to, to invest, but we do not have a, a lick at the moment or anything like that. It's not listed. Would you consider that? Or actually, here's a question, right? Because a lot of people uh, want to know pros and cons between having a listed version of the fund compared to just having it private. Why has Lakehouse chosen the private path? Uh, I think that is just the way we did it initially, and the way the fund is, you know, was set up. I think we've had discussions about possibly doing a lick. I wouldn't say it's something that we won't do. Um, it obviously has, you know, some access benefits for investors, um, makes it much easier for them to trade just like another stock, um, day to day. So I think we've thought about it. Um, but to be honest, I don't think we've had a huge amount of inbound demand that has made us think that this is something super necessary we need to do. I mean, most investors are pretty happy with, you know, direct access, direct access to the fund and also the platforms that we're on, um, like the net wealth of the world and everything. Is there an amount of money in the fund where essentially it reaches a cap and then the fund doesn't make sense or is it essentially an unlimited fund? You have the capacity to run billions or? or? Um, I think for the global fund, um, you know, we're only 250 million in AUM. So one thing I will say to you with certainty is that capacity is not an issue for us. If we were sitting here having uh, discussions around hitting our capacity limits, I would be a very happy man. Uh, <laughs> what is the capacity limit? Um, so look, we've got a, we've got a small companies fund, which you would obviously, you're, you're familiar with, um, you know, that's got a capacity limit around four to 500 million AUM and that's really liquidity driven, right? There's just not, you, you rule yourself out of certain opportunities and it gets a bit harder to run the strategy. So we've made that sort of decision there. The fund is open at the moment though. Look, there's a number of different ways you can calculate capacity. Um, for us, we tend to be mid and large cap focused. So it's, incredibly liquid. I mean, we're talking, 
you know, it might be 10 plus billion before that would really become a concern for us if we were thinking about constraints or, or our ability to, to invest in the smaller end of the market. How's the performance been with the fund? Since inception, sure. uh, we've CAGED, I think it's roughly around 12% uh, after fees, um, which compares to our benchmark of, need to check the, uh, the latest exact numbers, but roughly around 8%. So I think there's about 4% of alpha there. So, you know, in terms of what we're trying to do for investors, um, you know, we're very happy with it. Um, it's really generated decent, not just absolute, but, but relative returns to our benchmark. Um, so we're quite happy. Um, the fund is a little bit over five years old now, um, which is also pleasing. It's a decent track record. We, we get a little less questions about being, being uh, very young. So we're pleased with that. Um, obviously 2022 was a challenging year though, as it was for many equity managers, especially long only and, and growth focused. Um, but you know, thankfully things have uh, started to turn around the last few months. We've seen a green, few green shoots and, um, yeah, we'll see what happens from here. It's been a very interesting past five years. That is true. I can tell you I've lived it. <laughs> um, actually, this is a very good point regarding on those five years. Uh, a lot of people want to know as well as how do you manage the volatility in the portfolio? Do you have the, you have the capacity to go to cash? Um, how much cash could you go to? Um, have you gone to? And essentially, how are you managing the volatility we're seeing? Um, you know, a lot of people consider volatility risk. I would definitely argue against that and say, you know, the volatility we see in markets day to day is, is more or less an opportunity um, as long as you capitalise on it in the right way. Um, so, you know, risk for us is permanent impairment of capital. That's investing in a business where the fundamentals deteriorate or, you know, the whole thesis goes south and we take a, a serious hit to our, our capital that we invested. Um, volatility you know, does not bother us so much. Obviously for the end, end investor, um, they want to try and minimise that because it's never comfortable. Um, but for us, you know, it's really trying to take advantage of that volatility. And when we see, you know, what we consider, you know, extremely high quality uh, growth companies out there, you know, true compounders um, that we'd really love to own, you know, that, sometimes that volatility provides the opportunity for us to actually get established. Any examples? Yeah, there's, I mean, plenty of examples. If you even go back and look at you know, and this is one thing I spend a bit of time on and I'm quite passionate about, but people think, you know, if you look at the top 10 businesses in the world, you know, people often wonder why you would ever invest in them. Um, they kind of say, well, how can there be any edge or alpha investing in those companies? But even prior to the pandemic, if you looked at the top 10 companies and said, okay, how far do they swing from trough to peak in any given year? You know, most of them are moving 40 or 50%. And, you know, that is just, they're crazy swings. Um, and, I can tell you that the underlying economic value of those businesses is not shifting as much. You know, there's a lot of short-term trading flows, narratives um, that really drives that. Um, I think for us right now, one of our larger positions is Amazon. Um, you know, we think it's one of the most attractive and, and dominant companies out there globally. Um, you know, they're the number one, you know, cloud infrastructure provider and also e-commerce player globally. And, you know, fast approaching, um, one of the big boys in digital advertising as well. It's obviously been sold off on concerns around near-term profitability and some cost impacts that it's had on the back of the pandemic. Um, but in our view, you know, we think the, the growth potential three and five years out um, and where the business will be is still very much intact from an earnings power perspective. So it's very much a case of temporary issues providing, you know, what we think is one of the highest quality businesses at a very attractive price. And that's you know, to be honest, one of our ideal situations to lean into. And, and that's why it's one of the largest positions at the, at the moment. 
So when money comes into the fund, say a new new investor allocates via the fund or goes direct, what happens with that money? Does it uh, on the on the day the money gets allocated and spread across the portfolio as soon as the capital comes in? Do you pull the capital and essentially wait for? I don't know, a, a pullback in a particular company which you like, then allocate. How's the process work? Oh, I'll actually briefly touch on what was part of your previous question because I realised I just didn't answer it now after you've brought up cash again. Um, but look, we've got a range of 5 to 15% um, indicative for our cash, but we can go above that up to 20 or slightly below 5 on the lower bound depending on our conviction levels and how we're seeing the opportunity at any particular point in time. Um, so that has been in flux. Um, over the years, um, you know, when the market got incredibly hot in our view, um, you know, our cash position naturally built up and that wasn't us necessarily saying, hey, we're going to sell, we're going to start building up cash because we think this is just getting unsustainable. It was more a factor of just finding it hard to try and find opportunities bottom up out there where the returns, you know, stacked up and the math worked. Um, equally at the moment, you know, we're very much on the lower end of that bound. Um, so we're down around about 5% and that's because we think, you know, the opportunity is incredibly compelling at the moment. We're seeing plenty of companies and, and places to allocate capital. Um, to your question around flows, they're not normally that significant on any given day. I mean, obviously we've got daily liquidity, so, you know, flows are quite spread out, but, you know, to the extent we get cash in, that just simply goes into our cash account. Um, and, you know, we won't be making a decision based on that. So if we got unless it was an incredibly large chunk of money and we needed to because it was going to breach our, um, you know, required range of that five, roughly 5 to 15 or 5 to 20%. Um, you know, we're not really forced to do anything because we got some new money in or anything like that. It's very much driven by the opportunity set and what we see in front of us. Yeah, and the reason why I like understanding this because it touches on behavioural psychology, which is what you said you uh, majored in, right? Sure. So I'm a big believer that uh, the markets are not rational. But, the uh, markets are not <laughs> rational. Um, so, uh, with behavioral psychology, can you give a bit of, uh, give an understanding about how you're remunerated, how the funds remunerated? So, and the reason why we ask this question is, uh, when money goes in, people want to understand what type of opportunity you're taking, what level of risk you're taking, t uh, to hit your targets. So you get more money in your pocket, but you know, how does that translate into, um, the returns in the fund? for the investors? I mean, I think the first thing I'd just say around alignment starting out before we get into, you know, um, performance fees and how we're remunerated, you know, I, I think for myself, um, my personal investment uh, in the Lakehouse Global Growth Fund is is my biggest asset. Um, and that includes anything from stocks to real estate, whatever. So I am very much personally, um, you know, invested in the fund. I will eat my own cooking. Um, and live or die by those returns we will generate. Obviously, I believe we will do very well over the long term. Um, so I'm happy to be there. Um, but on the performance fee side, look, we we earn a performance fee if we outperform the benchmark. Um, so we have a 15% um, performance fee there. So it's very much a, a performance fee culture. At the end of the day, if we're not outperforming, um, you know, that compensation is basically the bulk of, of our incentives. So we need to we need to really perform to get paid at the end of the day. And I don't think anyone is really in this business to underperform, to be honest. What's the benchmark? So the benchmark is the MSCI or Country World Index in AUD terms as the fund is in AUD as well. So look, we've historically done that well. One thing I will say is that we also have a high watermark, um, which we think is best practice. Um, so at the moment, you know, we're 
wouldn't surprise you that given the year we've had, we're significantly underwater, which means we need to get back to that level before we could ever capture fees again. So it's it's not on an absolute basis relative to the benchmark. We do have a high watermark. The market's had a pretty big bounce since uh, before Christmas, so that might have pushed it up a bit in your favour. It's going in the right direction, but it's it's a long game. We've got some ground to catch up. So to be honest, anyone who invests here, it kind of gets a bit of a free kick on that. Um, but, you know, it's the way the fund's structured and we think it's the best way to do it to ensure that we're aligned with our investors. We wouldn't feel comfortable if the markets had a drawdown and we were able to reset, you know, essentially where we take performance fees. It, it wouldn't make much sense to us. So I think having the high watermark is the way to do it. Um and with the fund itself, um, who owns the fund? Is there a uh, Chinese wall? Good question. So Lake House Capital um, is actually owned by the Motley Fool, um, who is the parent company in the US. Um, but in terms of resources and work and everything like that, in terms of research, there is absolutely no crossover. So we do 100% of our own cooking. Um, it's actually, the businesses are actually regulated in different jurisdictions. So we're actually by law, <laughs> not even allowed to talk stock. So it's it's quite strongly enforced. But um, no, we're very much, a you know, the boutique here that you see is is what we're running with. There's no other resources or anything like that or relationships. So speaking of cooking, how do you actually cook the steak on a day-to-day basis? <laughs> Look, I guess in terms of what we're looking for out there, I kind of talked already to, you know, the economic models that we're, we're trying to find um, and I think I kind of gave a bit of an intro there on that. But beyond that, what I would say is, you know, there's a number of different attributes we're looking to invest with and also looking to avoid. Um, So, you know, as I said, we're looking for those asymmetric setups. Um, So obviously, I guess I'll speak to the upside first, um, really what we like to see. Um, You know, one thing would be, you know, gaining share of a growing market, Um, it's obviously not the be all and end all, but all else equal. Um, if you have a company that's gaining share within a growing market, it tends to be that they're doing something right, that they have a unique value proposition um, that is really resonating with the market. Obviously, there are a number of factor, other factors you need to think through um, in terms of, you know, the industry structure, the rate of innovation in the industry, what are the economics associated with their growth, but it's definitely a positive market we like to align ourselves with. Um, you know, one other thing we have a penchant for is founder-led businesses. Um, you can look at a a number of studies that show that founders tend to outperform, um, and that's no surprise. No founder, you know, no business is really cared for like any other by its founder. Um, and obviously, in most cases, there you have pretty strong alignment in terms of insider ownership. So, not all our companies are founder led, but when we like to, you know, when we can get it, we like to have it. Um, I guess. And then one last thing I'd just say is, you know, pricing power. Um, which is effectively a distillation of, you know, a company's competitive position and the industry structure. So I think, you know, by and large, when you find companies that have pricing power, the ability to push price increases onto the end customer without impairing demand, you typically have a high quality business, um, especially from a competitive standpoint. And, you know, that's something we have, we think we have um, in spades across the portfolio. And it's definitely served us very well over the last few years in the higher inflationary environment. Um, I guess just quickly on the downside, a few things we would avoid, reliance on leverage, um, pretty self-explanatory, but really reduces the tail risks and also provides, I guess, more optionality to businesses, particularly in tough times like we're in now. Um, if you don't have a constrained balance sheet, it can often allow you to go on the offense, uh, particularly if your competitors are hurting. Um, 
Another one would be concentrated customer bases um, or a reliance on someone else's business for a, a critical piece of infrastructure. So if you found a company that you thought had a great product, um, was doing really well, growing really fast, but you know, for their distribution, they relied 95% on one partner. Um, that's a key risk that you know, we're not really willing to take because um, it can obviously change overnight and have drastic impacts for the business. Um, and then one other thing I'd just say is around cyclicality. Um, once again, just removing that tower risk. So that gives you a sense, I guess, of the elements we're looking for and, and looking to avoid in any typical investment. Well, let's stay on the companies before we pivot into the wild world of uh, macroeconomics. Um, can you give a couple of examples regarding uh, companies that are currently in the portfolio that meet that criteria of what you're looking for and how they're performing? I think a great example here would be Mercado Libre. Mercado Libre. Um, so it is actually one of, actually it may be, depending on the day, uh, the largest position in the fund. Um, so I think it's probably a good one to talk to. Um, but, you know, for if listeners- If anyone hasn't heard about Mercado Libre, I just have to bring this up because it's been in the papers quite a bit. So essentially- they had their largest competitor fall 80% in one day, I believe. And I believe it was due to a $3.88 billion accounting scandal. Yes, you were referring to uh, Americanas there. Um, there were some issues they had on their supply chain financing or something of the like, um, but it basically looks like it was just internal human errors or at least what they've said. But um, You can't really plan for that occurring, can you? You can't, um, and these things do happen, but look, I mean, I think how you really manage for that is is the quality of management. Um, and, you know, Mercado Libre, I would say, you know, being founder-led um, and also having that founder, you know, very aligned through owning about 8% of the business kind of helps take away some of that risk that there's going to be that oversight. You know, he's been doing this day in, day out for the last 23 years, building this business up from when it was a baby um, and he has, you know, a good five or so billion dollars of equity on the line. Um, I think it just, you know, puts a, a different degree of, of oversight there um, in our minds. Um, but yes, you're right. You can never completely rule it out. But um, a bit of an update there. Yeah, they've recently, I think it was on the 20th of January, um, formally filed for bankruptcy Americanas. So obviously that's been a bit of a, uh, a boon for Mercado Libre, given that they were one of the largest competitors in the Brazilian e-commerce space. So, you know, a nice positive to have, but obviously we weren't planning for that one. Have you looked into the numbers, like uh, like percentage-wise, how big an impact that was going to have positively for the company, for Mercado Libre? Hard to know now, um, given they haven't reported. They actually report later this week. Um, so we will get some fresh numbers, but we have seen some traffic share numbers and, and their traffic has spiked um, along with the decline in, in Americanas. So there's, there's initial indications there that they've benefited pretty materially, um, as you would expect. But maybe just back on Mercado Libre quickly, and I might just run through in terms of um, the business. Um, but yeah, like I said, I think it ticks a lot of the boxes for what we're looking for. And those that aren't familiar with the business, um, it's the leading e-commerce player in Latin America. Um, but in addition to having you know, that core marketplace. They also have a number of ancillary businesses um, that strap on around that with advertising, uh, payments and shipping. Um, and importantly, in our view, um, not only do these, you know, increase their market opportunity, um, but they're also pretty important in terms of increasing the stickiness of the platform to, you know, consumers and merchants alike. 
Um, so the business has been, you know, incredibly successful to date and executed very well. Um, to give you a sense, um, obviously they were a, a pandemic beneficiary, uh, being an internet first company. Um, but between 2019 and today, so over the last three years, roughly, um, you know, they're 4.5x their revenue base. So growing at a very, very healthy clip, um, you know, in terms of what we like about the business and, and the boxes it ticks, um, look, it's, it's founder led, it's gaining share of a growing market. Um, it also has some very strong network dynamics at play, um, thanks to its marketplace and also its payments business, um, and also has a very long um, growth runway. And, you know, that really comes from the fact that, you know, not only is it still very early in Latin America in terms of overall penetration levels of e-commerce, um, but there's also a material percentage of the population that remain unbanked. Um, so plenty of opportunity for them. Um, I think one last thing I'd just touch on to kind of bring it home um, is really about valuation. Um, I think, you know, with the broad-based drawdown that we saw in 2022 across the market in general, obviously valuations have, have come back a lot, but that's been very acute with a lot of internet and growth businesses. And, you know, our view would be that every, you know, the baby's kind of been thrown out with the bathwater there. Um, doesn't really, you know, your fundamentals haven't mattered too much or your, you know, your competitive position or, or whatever dynamics. And I think Mercado Libre is an example of that. It's trading at, you know, despite continuing to execute very well um, and going from strength to strength. Um, you know, it's trading at about five times forward revenue, um, which is the cheapest it's basically been in its entire history outside of the GFC. So a very compelling valuation. And we think the risk reward here is, you know, incredibly attractive and hence why we've got a, a very large position. What are the big techs in the portfolio? Uh, so we actually have a few names. Um, so we have Amazon um, and also Alphabet um, as some of our larger positions. I think you also mentioned Microsoft as well. Yes, Microsoft we added towards the midpoint of last year. And let's discuss ChatGPT. I'm sure there's not a person <laughs> that's listening to this has not heard about uh, artificial intelligence pretty much taking over the headlines. I believe the, the statistics on it was it took 16 years for the World Wide Web to rack up 100 million users and what was it? 100 million in 60 days or maybe even 30 days? It might have been a month. I did see that stat flying around. Look, it's obviously... That's you know, incredible. Ever since it's been released in the, the consumer model, it's had uh, incredible success and I think blown a few minds with the, <laughs> the responses everyone's seen <laughs> online. Can you give a bit of colour around what is ChatGPT and essentially the impacts um, it has on these big tech companies? Some are discussing whether or not, like say Google uh, with Bed, to use it to monetize it immediately whilst Microsoft's gone down a different angle and uh, what are your thoughts? ChatGPT is a, a large language model, what they call a... LLM. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you've heard that term thrown around and, and everyone's probably equally confused what they're even talking about with large language models. But, you know, the actual definition um, is an artificial neural network, um, which they train on a vast data set um, to basically generate natural language responses to queries. Um, so you've got a lot of data scientists and and whatnot training these data sets such that, you know, when you put in a certain query, you'll get something that comes back in a relatively, you know, conversational tone. Um, so, look, it's definitely taken the uh, the hype cycle by storm. Everyone seems to have forgotten about crypto and then the metaverse, and now we're on to uh, large language models pretty quickly. Um, so I think things are definitely, we seem to move, the hype cycle seems to be moving a little bit quicker these days. But 
there is clearly something beneath it um, in terms of the technology, obviously. Um, I think where exactly that all goes, not many people know right now. I'm sure like chatbots um, and various business functions or work processes, um, you know, the question is to what degree can they be automated and done better by a system like this? Um, And I'm sure we'll see a lot more of it in the years to come. Um, I think our direct focus right now is really, you know, around ChatGPT um, and its ability or the potential that it could disrupt um, Google's core search business. Um, Good question. I'm not as convinced as uh, most people out there, but look, Microsoft held an event last week uh, where they announced that they're going to incorporate an early version of ChatGPT into Bing, which is their search engine, um, and essentially run with that. That led to a a pretty vicious share price uh, response to Alphabet. Uh, I think the company lost, call it $100 billion or a bit over $100 billion in market cap um, just last week alone. So people are pretty nervous, and I think uncertainty is high. But, you know, I'd say their ability to disrupt search is probably being exaggerated to some degree at this point, not least because, you know, Alphabet themselves is largely, you know, regarded as a leader in AI and he's been spending a ton of money and working on such technologies for an incredibly long period of time. So they would clearly have the technology there to roll something out similar themselves if they, you know, wanted to. And and indeed, I believe they will. They obviously already kind of are. They tried to do a uh, an event in response to Microsoft's last week, um, which wasn't exactly that convincing and had a few errors in it. And I think fumbling that response, they were clearly rushed, kind of led to, (laughs) you know, fed into the uncertainty around the business. But there's still a way to go in terms of the technology um, to get it to a point where it can disrupt search. And I say that for a few reasons, but, you know, it's incredibly computationally intensive and expensive um, to incorporate a large language model like ChatGPT into search. Um, I think the estimates I saw is roughly it's, you know, eight to 10 times more expensive than a search query. Um, there's also the fact that, you know, the data sets that you're running off are typically somewhat dated. So it's not giving you information of the day. It might be to the end of, say, 2022 or something, which obviously is not ideal as well. Um, so there's a few constraints like that. And then, you know, obviously when you really step back and think from first principles, okay, well, what is Google's dominance in search really predicated upon or protected by. And I think a lot of it comes back to, you know, the hardware and the operating system, um, you know, advantage that they do have. Also the fact that, you know, they largely have the brand equity and the consumer mind share when it comes to search and arguably the best search product. So when you put all that together uh, with their data advantage, it's not entirely clear to me how Microsoft's going to, you know, disrupt that. I think one key stat is just 61% or a little over 60% of, you know, search queries are actually done on mobile um, where Microsoft has absolutely no presence. So unless they're willing to pay Apple the 15 to 20 billion a year that Alphabet pays for, you know, the priority placement um, within the Safari browser, it, it's unclear to me how they're exactly going to steal that pot from Alphabet. So there's, what I'm saying is there's a lot more to it than just a fancy technology and this is going to be so much better than search, let's roll it out. I think, you know, there's a lot more hype and it's a bit exaggerated right now in terms of the disruption risk to, to Alphabet. Well, isn't that the biggest question? Like, what is it? What what does it actually do? Is it like, you know, the kernel's secret uh, recipe, you know, is that the code or is it actually the thing that makes this thing so fascinating is the data set, as you mentioned before, that it can go through. So if say I'm using it right now to figure out which fund manager I'm going to use, right? 
are you saying that uh, the AI is only good as the data set which you can access or is it the algorithm? Uh, I think it's both. I think it's the data set that it can access and also how well it's been trained. Um, so there's a few different variables here. I think the reality is we'll probably have numerous versions of chat GPT like, you know, products in the future with different companies, you know, different companies offering them. Um, but it, it's hard, right? I mean, even at the moment, um, you know, there's instances where if it doesn't know the perfect answer, it will hallucinate and make things up. Now that could be a bit of a problem if you <laughs> really rely, you know, if you think about Google search, it's a utility, right? Yeah. And what you want is speed, accuracy, and reliability. And that's why I just think, you know, people are making a bit of a leap here to think that suddenly tomorrow, you know, Microsoft being because it has. Well, this- what's interesting about that is I've heard a couple of people that are, um, you know, either portfolio managers, data engineers, or just anyone that requires a large data set, some of them actually just for a giggle have had Google up and then had ChatGPT up and they're asking the exact same questions. But what they're experiencing is via Google, you're getting the answer, but also 15 ads. Whilst ChatGPT, there's no ads and essentially refines and changes or I could put up this podcast transcript and it'll remove all the ums, the ahs, and, you know, maybe a comment I shouldn't have made quite cleanly and it puts it up and it can even rewrite the entire works of Shakespeare, you know, in the language of Harry Potter. It's fascinating. But the, I suppose the question I'm asking, uh, I'd really like to hear your thoughts on is that's on the, the search component, but you also have a myriad of other companies out there. Does this artificial intelligence have the uh, potential to improve the efficiencies of these businesses? Because uh, what, what do you think? Is, is it purely a search engine or does the individual who's doing their job now have a better source of information to fine tune everything and then do the companies internally become better like as an example in the states in america they banned kids and universities for using chat gpt because kids were spitting out perfect 100 percent essays there's a lot of use cases i think <laughs> that um you know, when you really think through it, opens a lot of trapdoors and, yeah. and questions, even some moral and ethical ones, right? Like, can you ask, you know, for instance, what what information do you block? Which is obviously a decision Google has to make as well. But if you're asking ChatGPT something nefarious around how do I build a bomb or XYZ? Elon Musk said that. Yeah. So you get into, you, you get into a lot of, you know, different areas. And I think over time that will all be worked out. But to your bigger point, I think this will, you know, it'll end up permeating you know, not just the consumer's life in sort of whether it's search or whether it's even just a different use case of writing text or, you know, different things like that, but definitely within businesses. I mean, call center functionality, I could see how this could easily, you know, once you train the models and it's it's at a certain level and it continues to learn itself and compound, I mean, be way better than having human call centers, for example, right? So there's definitely big areas that I think it will change. Um, whether we're there yet with the technology, I don't know. But yes, obviously, <laughs> my primary concern being the, <laughs> um, with my with my investor hat on is really around, you know, what, what could this potentially do for or against any of our portfolio companies? And that's what we're kind of thinking about right now. But I think, you know, we'll continue to, to read widely and there'll be a lot more that comes out around it. As for the narrative around this disrupting Google search, this isn't the first time we've seen such a narrative, right? Um, we had it when there was vertical applications back in the day when people said, oh, the trip advisors of the world are going to eat up search and search is going to decline didn't prove to be the case. Google just strapped on, you know, various vertical search things onto its own platform. And also with Alexa, oh, we're going to shift a voice and suddenly Google's not going to have a world. 
you know, if you jump at that, that first sort of headline every time, you're going to find yourself, you know, jumping out of all these incredibly dominant businesses very frequently, right? So I think it takes, you know, it, it's worth taking a step back, deep breath and actually thinking through, well, hang on, what does this technology do? What does it really mean? Is it really a search, like, you know, purely a search functionality, you know, and, and going through the elements. And I think when you do that, you realize that it's not as clear cut as maybe some headlines are suggesting. Do you own any social media businesses in the country? Uh, we do have a small holding in Facebook. So here's a question, right? If the metaverse clearly didn't work, if Facebook pivots and essentially incorporates ChatGPT or the AI into essentially what they're doing, what does that do for the company? Well, that's a good question. I mean, there's maybe, and that's kind of what I was getting at earlier, maybe a lot of businesses just incorporate this ChatGPT-like functionality into their websites or applications um, and everyone's kind of running it. I mean, but at the end of the day, if you don't own anything that's proprietary or unique and it's all relatively like a commodity, then that's not going to be a great business, right? Yeah. Um, so I think you've got to think through the barriers to entry and what it's really offering and then who could really monetize that in a proprietary sense. And I have no idea at this point, but to your point exactly, I'm sure Facebook is meta. Sorry. From what you're saying, it sounds like it's more like a tool that will essentially improve the inner workings of these businesses, which I think is fascinating in comparison to something that could be quickly monetized. I think so. I think on the consumer-facing side, it's it's hard to exactly see where it fits in. I mean, maybe you do go to google.com and you've got Google search and then right on the right-hand side, you have, you know, Bard, which is, or whatever, you know, their GPT um, chat GPT functionality as well. I'm, I'm sure you will see that. Um, well, let's put a pin in this because I think we'll talk about this for the next <laughs> hour because it's just mind blowing. Because to your point, you don't. I don't think anyone knows where this is going. But it's, what a fantastic, F- fascinating space! Fascinating I will say space it's going to change a lot of things. So, um, well, let's definitely talk, one to keep an eye on. Let's talk about things that definitely change. Let's discuss China. Um, it was the first one into the crash, and it appears it's uh, potentially one of the first ones out of it. So, I believe as long as I've known you, your favorite company in the entire world has probably been Tencent. So how is Tencent going and what's your opinion on what's happening in China now? Yeah, sure. Look, um, yeah, we've been bullish on Tencent um, for a while. We think it is a, a fantastic business. One thing I will preface that with is obviously it's a mainland China stock, so it comes with other risks, right? Um, so that's why it's never been a very large holding in the fund. Um, but to your bigger point on China, yes, I think you know what we saw in 2022 for them was almost the perfect storm. Um, you know, they had a pretty acute real estate slowdown, very significant regulatory crackdown, um, COVID lockdowns round two. Um, it was really hard for it to get much more pessimistic for them. You had some incredibly cheap valuations over there. I think 10 cent, if you stripped out their portfolio, you know, you were talking a seven, uh, sorry, a single digit uh, PE. And that was largely on what was, you know, trough earnings as well. Um, so, since the company, uh, since the country reopened, sorry, um, a couple of months ago, we've seen that kind of rip completely the other way. Um, I think even businesses like Tencent, um, are, you know, now up roughly a hundred percent out of their October lows. So there's definitely been a bit of a shift there in sentiment. Um, I think over the next, you know, we're still comfortable with Tencent. Um, it's a, a moderate holding in the the portfolio, and I think China's probably in a good place to perform over the next, you know short to medium term. I think the longer term there though is definitely in my mum definitely in my mind um, becoming more cloudy. Um, and I just think the ongoing decoupling that you're seeing between the East and the West um, is certainly raising the geopolitical risk. So that's something where we're thinking about a lot um, as to whether we 
we really want to have that mainland exposure. You know, now we're, we're very comfortable with it and we think it's a phenomenal business and we'll do well, um, but it's definitely something we're monitoring closely. Obviously, you know, the other option is to get exposure to China through companies that are not listed there. Um, we do have that as well, like an LVMH, which, you know, the Chinese seem to have an insatiable appetite for luxury and, you know, LVMH has been a, a big beneficiary there and that's obviously, you know, that's also performed very well for the fund as well. Thoughts on UK and Europe? Any exposure in the fund there? We do have some exposure. So I just mentioned LVMH um, and obviously a lot of our businesses are global, so they sell all around the world. But we also have Hemnet, um, which is a Swedish online property portal. So think of the REA. Basically, you can think of REA group here without a competitor. Um, so they're about 10 times the size of the next closest platform. Um, so more or less, you know, consumer facing monopoly, um, great business, um, very stable end market as well. Um, so we very much like that. But uh, our Europe and UK exposure at the moment is probably on the lighter side, and that is a deliberate decision. The inflation picture around the world um, is very different. Um, the US has largely rolled over here. Maybe we're about to roll over China. No real inflationary problem at all at the moment. Europe, bit of a basket case. Obviously, they have the issues um, in the East, um, given the war with Russia and, and Ukraine, um, but also pretty significant energy crisis. So, you know, inflation over there is it's taking a real toll and it's a region that we, we've been underweight for um, a little bit now. Very, very wary about. So I think we, I think I read a statistic uh, that about 80% of central banks worldwide are currently in tightening phase. So what's your- Certainly it, feels like it. Certainly feels like it. So um, how's it impacting the fund? And I suppose, what are your thoughts on macroeconomics and where rates are going and the bigger picture? I think on the, uh, the macro front, um, look, we're- by no means macro investors, you know that, um, very much business focused, bottom up, analysts looking for, for companies and focusing on the fundamentals. Um, but what I would say with that is it's impossible to ignore the macro, particularly in today's world, right? We're always looking at it. Um, we're definitely, if I had to kind of sense our macro or how we think about it, it's very much macro aware, um, but micro focused, right? Um, so it, it does shape things we do, like I said, with Europe. Um, but I think on the interest rate front, I think inflation is is more or less yesterday's war. Um, I think last year, you know, central banks were going incredibly hard to tamp down on inflation and, and raise rates. Um, and I think, you know, in our view, we're probably closer to the back end of that, called the seventh or eighth inning. Um, I think you largely saw that with Powell's press conference recently. Um, the market obviously reacted well. And whilst I would say he didn't say anything that was too optimistic, to be honest. It was um, very, very nuanced. <laughs> what he did um, was he provided some certainty, I think, and really that's all the market um, or all investors really wanted to see, which was, you know, just some certainty about where rates would end up and at least know that the uh, the rate of change, for lack of a better better word there, uh, better saying, I should say, um, was slowing down. Um, and as soon as they saw that, you know, it kind of I guess, gave a lot of people who were sitting on the sidelines, there's plenty of capital out there just waiting um, for this to end, to lean in. Um, so I think the inflation and interest rate picture is improving from here. Um, I think the bigger risk as we look out over the next 12 months is really um, the recession risk. So, you know, the question now is we've had this incredibly steep and quick you know, ramp in interest rates. Um, what's the demand destruction going to look like on the other side? And, you know, to that point, I think it's, incredibly hard to know because you have a lot of mixed signals. So, you know, on one hand, you have the yield curve in the United States, 
which is basically the most inverted it's been in the last 40 years, which is telling you in the next 12 to 18 months, there is a seriously high probability of a meaningful recession. Um, but then on the other hand, you look at the consumer data, um, the employment data, and it just continues to be incredibly strong. Um, you know, the fact that the last print we had for the US um, unemployment rate, uh, 3.4, 3. mid threes, call it, um, percent is the lowest unemployment's been since 1969, kind of tells you everything. Like the labor market over there is red hot. Um, so I think, you know, that's the real risk from here, thinking about the recession and just how sticky inflation proves to be on the downside, given um, wage inflation will probably, you know, stay stay at least warmish on the other side. I get, I get this question all the time. So essentially, what, do, what, what does this rally? We've seen almost doubling from the lows, Tesla, a number of different tech companies, right? So is this a bear, do you think this is a bear market bounce or do you think this is the beginning of a long, slowed recovery or do you think this is trend is still down? Because we also, uh, from the research we're currently receiving, there's also talks, as you said, with um, the inflation situation of potentially um, companies suffering a profit crisis, just the, as you said, the impact of on discretionary spending and then potentially if that occurs, uh, you would hate to see it, but potentially a uh, credit crisis of, you know, some sort down down the down the end. Do you think that's where this is going, or do you think this is the beginning of the recovery, or what's your current opinion? Yeah, I think on that. Obviously, the markets have had a really good start to the year. Um, I don't think I, or I should say, we at Lakehouse, have much of an edge in terms of predicting recessions credit crises or anything like that. Um, in fact, I would argue that, you know, if you look back over history, um, you know, no one really has a consistent edge there. Um, and even if you do, trying to make money off it can be quite a tricky game. So, you know, for us, it's all just bringing it back to fundamentals. Like I said, despite all the doom and gloom, you're constantly getting headlines saying this or that is about to occur, the recession is coming, um, which, you know, if you're betting on, that's fine, but it's also the most predicted recession of all time. But, you know, for us, the portfolio companies continue to grow. I think over the last quarter, um, the weighted average, you know, revenue growth across the portfolio is still north of 20%. So things are still very healthy um, from a fundamental perspective. Um, so I'm not too sure where we go from here. Um, we do have a, an inflation print this week and there is an extreme amount of volatility out there. So things could change quickly. But, you know, my personal sense is that, you know, I think... I'm starting to get much more constructive here from a, a risk perspective. Um, and I say that for a few reasons, but, you know, at least in the US, inflation appears to have peaked. Um, and that's the most important market given the Fed sets the cost of capital for the rest of the world. Um, you've also got freight rates, commodity prices that are down significantly, which is a pretty good forward-looking indicator for where inflation's going. You've already got a 5% terminal Fed funds rate priced in versus 0% 18 months ago. So a lot of that dislocation we saw, we saw and that value adjustment has already played out. And then you already have, you know, the NASDAQ down 25% and valuations at much more attractive levels than what they were. So I think right now, um, if you can focus on fundamentals and tune out the noise um, and really, if, you know, if you can take that three to five year view, um, I think, you know, it'll prove a pretty good time um, to invest. I'm, I'm definitely more constructive right now. Uh, so using that exact theory, what has been the most recent uh, allocations to the portfolio? Which company? Sure. So in terms of um, recent additions, um, we've added Hemnet, which I mentioned. We've also added Charles Schwab, um, which was which is one of the largest um, discount brokerages 
um, an asset, well, turning into almost an asset management firm um, over in the States. Um, and we've also added to a number of our higher conviction positions. So talking the Amazons of the world, uh, CoStar, ServiceNow, Constellation Software, really a number of positions that we feel, you know, have been sold off pretty, um, not irrationally, but just, you know, sold off way more than they should have been. Um, fundamentals are holding up quite well. Um, and for these businesses, we feel that whatever comes down the pike, um, they're pretty well placed to deal with it. Um, and, you know, that's not just due to our philosophy, but, you know, if you have, you know, the world we're talking about right now, and it depends who you ask, but if we're looking at slower growth, maybe, you know, moderating, but pretty persistent higher inflation than we've had previously and, and higher interest rates, the question is, well, what kind of business do you want to invest in in that environment? Um, and we definitely feel we're in the right companies to deal with that. And I'd say, you know, the things you want to secular growth, you know, businesses that can continue growing, even if you get the broader economic weakness, high gross margins and pricing power. Um, so you can deal with inflation. Definitely, you know, maybe dominant businesses that are at least dominant within their markets. Um, and I say that from the perspective of, you know, not, not only are they best placed to, you know, survive a recession if we get one, um, but the ability to play, I wouldn't underestimate the ability to play offense when everyone else is playing defense. You know, if if it is a very tough market um, and a lot of your competitors are reeling and you're able to reinvest and really try to capture the upside coming out of that, you know, rapid market share gains can can happen. Um, and then the last one I'd just say is you know, minimal leverage. Um, obviously, in a rising rate environment, it's obvious if, you, if your capital structure gets strained, you're going to come under pressure. So I think those are the four kind of key things. And I'd say it's pretty consistent, not only with how our, you know, philosophy and strategy has always been, but we think we've, we've positioned the portfolio um, accordingly such that whatever plays out, um, hopefully our businesses will continue to thrive and grow for many years. And, um, you know, that will play out in share prices eventually over the long term. So they're the themes that you're currently looking at. Uh, is there any themes that aren't in the portfolio now that you're considering? Um, a lot of the themes that many people are discussing, obviously, you've, as you said, you're not going to touch airlines. So what about... Um, uh, in the renewable space, you've got all the cars, the lithium batteries, solid state, uh, solid state batteries uh, starting to pop up everywhere. Uh, what about cybersecurity? Anything like this you're considering or just not on your radar? Um, look, I wouldn't say it's not on our radar. We'll look at anything. Um, as I said, we're really searching from, from a bottom-up perspective, looking for those core economic models first um, and the businesses that are, are set to benefit from those secular trends. So you noted a few there, cybersecurity. Um, we've looked at it here and there. We don't own any direct plays there um, in terms of, you know, pure cybersecurity companies, but there's obviously a huge opportunity there. I'd say, you know, the rate of change in the industry for us is something we kind of struggle with. It, it does kind of move pretty quick. Um, so it's hard for us to really feel like we have an edge in predicting how that's going to turn out. Um, but we do have some exposure through the likes of Microsoft, for an example, um, which has, you know, an absolutely massive um, cybersecurity business in and of its own right, own right right now. Um, so we kind of get a bit of that without having to take the direct bet on any individual player. But um, yeah, it's very conceivable we could going forward. I mean, it's a, a very attractive market and there's some businesses there, um, which I know you're familiar with, like the cloud flares of the world and, and whatnot that are, you know, very high quality and, and there's some opportunities. So we'll always, always be looking. Just to finish off, is there any thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, look, the only, I guess the only one thing I would say is that um, and I was kind of touching on this earlier, is really just around the macro and uncertainty that's out there. 
um, obviously sentiment's incredibly depressed and and there's a lot of fear. Um, but I think at times like this, what really pays is to take a step back, deep breath and, and focus on fundamentals. Um, so if you can find those companies that you think are, are still performing very well, uh, momentum is strong, their competitive position is strong and you think they have, you know, great opportunity and potential over the next three, five, 10 years um, to continue growing um, and, and they're trading at what is very, you know, very attractive valuations today. I think it's a time to lean in. So I'm not suggesting that the bottom is in or I have any magical crystal ball, um, but, you know, when everyone is fearful um, is often the time, as, as Warren would say, that, you know, opportunity presents itself. So I just think, you know, now is not a time to put your, your head in the sand. Markets are forward looking. Uh, by the time all these storm clouds have dissipated and we're back here talking like it's the good old glory days, markets will be 30, 40, 50% off their lows and, you know, we'll be back to back on the cycle. Um, so just like chat, chat GPD, nobody knows, <laughs> but up, up it goes. <laughs> <laughs> good. Nice one. You should, uh, should trademark that. <laughs> um, if anyone wants to learn more about Lakehouse or the global strategy, uh, how can they find you? lakehousecapital.com.au. We try to be pretty transparent in everything we do. So we pump, we publish a monthly letter. You can see our top 10 holdings there. We also talk about, you know, the material holdings when they report each quarter. So um, definitely try to be, you know, transparent with investors and we've got quarterly webinars we run so they can find all that information there. And I think it gives you a pretty good sense of, of what we're about. Thanks, Nick, for coming on The Rate of Change. It's been really enjoyable hearing your thoughts and I hope you have a great day. No problem. Thanks, Murdoch. It was a pleasure. Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation and before any action, you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au.